This is episode 236 of the Read to Lead podcast, and it's presented in part by cloud accounting software solution FreshBooks. Enjoy access for 30 days to all FreshBooks has to offer absolutely free when you go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. you can answer a handful of questions and your answers match your boss and your peers, then you measurably get the big picture. And if your answers don't match, then you have a gap. Hi there. I'm so glad you're here. This is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast hosted by me, Jeff Brown, and dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then you have to be a lifelong learner. Intentional and consistent reading, in other words, is an absolute must. I'm going to hopefully help you narrow down this ever-important reading list by helping you understand the books you need to pay attention to. Here's a hint. If it's being featured on this show, it's a book and an author you need to be paying attention to. Today's guest and book, no exception. In just a few minutes, we'll get to sit down with Steve Troutman. He has authored a book called Do You Have Who It Takes? Managing Talent Risk in a High-Stakes Technical Workforce. I'll ask Steve to share about the differences between talent risk and traditional employee retention, strategies for mitigating talent risk by effectively transferring knowledge, common practices you may be guilty of that don't help you to effectively manage talent risk, and much, much more. Steve says that as a leader, you do your best to manage risk diligently in most business areas, but people risks are often held to a lower standard. The problem, he says, is real and growing in part because you just don't know what to do about it. Whether leading a team, a department, a division, or even a global company, managers and executives need a better way to think and talk about their critical talent needs. And that's what Steve's book is designed to help you do. It isn't just about filling headcount. You have to know what it costs in time and money to develop, replace, and or align experts who have unique technical knowledge, and you also need to know what can go wrong in the meantime. The best part is the book goes far beyond academic theory to include a talent risk methodology, scripts for critical conversations, case studies, and useful tools derived from boots-on-the-ground experience. And if there's one thing I'm a fan of, it's useful tools. One of those useful tools in my business is my cloud accounting software, FreshBooks. I use it and I love it. I don't like to talk a lot about or think a lot about numbers. And FreshBooks ensures I don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about that, as odd as that may sound. And when you check out FreshBooks and their free 30-day trial, you get to see how cool it is. And there's no obligation. They don't ask for a credit card. You simply sign up for free at a special URL and learn all about FreshBooks for yourself. That special URL, by the way, is freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Find out for yourself what I've known for about nine years now. There is no better cloud accounting software solution than FreshBooks. FreshBooks.com slash read to lead and be sure and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Steve Troutman's practical data-driven ideas on knowledge transfer have been used by blue chip companies around the globe for over 20 years and provide the backbone of his fresh insights on talent risk. 
And these ideas apply up the chain of command, Steve says, from the front line to the boardroom and across generations, geographies, job functions, and industries. Uh, he's worked at Microsoft and Expedia, and he eventually formed his own knowledge transfer and consulting company. And he's also the author of a couple of other books, Teach What You Know, A Practical Leader's Guide to Knowledge Transfer Through Peer Mentoring. And he's also the co-author of The Executive Guide to High-Impact Talent Management. His latest book is Do You Have Who It Takes? Managing Talent Risk in a High-Stakes technical workforce, and I'm excited to have him. Steve, thank you for being here. My pleasure, Jeff. Well, I think many of us are familiar with the concept or the phrase traditional employee retention. Uh, So how is talent risk, Steve, different from employee retention, or, or is it? Jeff, think of retention as just a symptom of talent risk. And as leaders, we run into problems like this all the time. Retention is one example. Sometimes we worry about having um, aging workers who are getting ready to retire. Sometimes we've got outsourced partners that we're worried about. Sometimes we'll get our engagement scores and those are low. So uh, those are all just symptoms of talent risk. I like to define talent risk as the gap between your current team's technical and professional capacity, and then the people you're going to need to be able to deliver on your plans, on your strategy. So it's a little bit bigger than something like uh, employee retention. Well, the first chapter dives right into busting some of these talent risk myths, Steve calls it. So Steve, share with me what some of those myths are that we need to, to be aware of. Yeah, well, the, the, the number one myth for leaders is that uh, you can manage other kinds of business risk with data, uh, but you can't manage talent risk with data. Mm. So, you know, when we're when we think about uh, risks like risk to supply chain or legal risks or safety risks or uh, financial risks, you know, executives have, uh, by and large, a, you know, a, a clear idea of how to deal with those. But when we say, yeah, but, you know, half your budget goes to your headcount and people are your most important asset, how are you managing risk for your people? Uh, so one big myth is that you can't do that with the same kind of rigor as you do your other kinds of risks. Mm. There's a, a couple other ones that we talk about in the book. Uh, one of them is that people think, you know, a lot of our clients will say, well, our team is very unique. You know, we're, we're a video game company and we mm. have artists on staff. And so that makes them them different. Or we're biotech and we're researching treatments for cancer. Uh, so we're unique or we're uh, developing a software that has algorithms that are on the bleeding edge. We're unique. And so that's another big thing is that people think that sometimes there's a myth that certain types of people and their technical expertise is so unique that it can't be managed. I always say uh, they are unique and that's why they're so valuable to you. But there's more that's about them that's common with their other technical peers than there is unique. So let's let's think about them in that way. Well, well this uh, all leads to my, my next question in that the book suggests the costs of mistakes can be readily predicted, making it possible to solve some of these talent related mistakes before they happen. How how can we begin, Steve, making this kind of idea part of our just regular everyday mindset? The cost of a mistake is if you if you think about picture your your, some of your best people and you 
we call those people sometimes the pacers because they're so good that we want them everywhere. We need them on every project. We need their insights, their experience everywhere. And if you think about them doing the work and the value of that work, it's it's very high. Then you compare them to the people that are learning from your best people or who are you know new to your organization. And then you look at the mistakes that are made by people who are not fully up to speed. So when we think about the cost of mistake, it's, it's asking this question, what does it cost in time and money to to replicate or replace that key individual and then mm-hmm. what can go wrong in the meantime between when you're trying to replicate them or replace them uh, and when those you know those those uh, we call them the apprentices when they get up to speed and if, so if we as leaders can think about that gap and quantify it and we do that with our data every day then you can start to say there's uh, millions of dollars in revenue at risk or there's potential uh, safety risks where people could get hurt or killed. Uh, Sometimes it's a competitive threat. uh, So we have the risk of losing a customer or market share. And so we can quantify that and and think about the cost to our business of having, you know, people who aren't fully skilled and ready to go on their work. By quantifying it, then you can start to think about what you're going to do to spend money, effort, time to solve that problem before it becomes, you know, those risks become real. I would imagine you occasionally, Steve, run into some pushback from a leader maybe who's considering investing in talent development, but maybe is concerned about, well, what if I lose that talent at at some point and and then thereby lose my investment? And no matter what I do to try to keep them, I'm not going to be able to prevent that at some point. What what would you say to the person who has that concern? Well, there's there's an old adage. Uh, Jeff, what if I develop my people and they leave? And and the answer is, well, what if I don't develop my people and they stay? <laughs> right. right? Uh, but I want you, to, your listeners to think about it this way. Turnover is normal. Mm. You are going to have two to 20 percent turnover on a regular basis. And if you don't have it today, you will have it, especially in today's economy with whatever shy of 4% unemployment. Uh, people have opportunities. The next generations coming up are much less likely to stay at a company for more than five years. Let's get really comfortable as leaders with the idea that we need to have a muscle around managing turnover and we need to be good at it. And so when one of our best people gets promoted or gets poached by a competitor, we can deal with that. Also, you know, with the nature of the global workforce, you know, 100% of our clients have a global workforce and virtually all of them have outsourced contractors and other outsourced partners. So the just the um, complexity that we all work in is so high that, you know, worrying about losing one person has to be something that we we've got a plan for. We know what to do about it. We can and we can take a minute and be frustrated, but we shouldn't uh, consider that to be abnormal anymore. What about in situations where you're dealing with uh, two companies coming together? My brother uh, used to work for a publicly traded company that was recently purchased, and you've got two completely different teams merging into one, and some people are, are losing their jobs as a result. Any advice there? Yeah. So mergers and acquisitions um, and also divestitures where you're splitting off a portion of a company, also super common these days. And um, what we like to do is say, listen, if you're if you're buying a company, you're not just buying the brand and the intellectual property and the customers and the market share, uh, maybe physical locations. You're also, of course, 
buying a bunch of people. And uh, I grew up at Microsoft in the early 90s. We were acquiring companies right and left. And I saw this happen over and over again, where we would buy a company and then the people who came along got lost in the shuffle. And what was most frustrating was that the very best people in an acquisition had lots of options. They would get called by headhunters and they would get plucked out of the company right away. And who was the people who were left behind were often the folks who had nowhere else to go. Mm. And so that's a terrible situation. If you invested sometimes hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars in an acquisition and the best people go and you're left behind with the B players. So one thing to think about from a talent risk management perspective is that we can gather data on the talent that we're getting, you know, we're acquiring through the deal and we can know the role that they played and we can value it. And then very, very importantly, as leaders, we can then talk to the people that we're acquiring and say, we know who you are, we know what you've been doing and we value it. We just helped a company prepare for an acquisition recently, and there were 700 people being brought in through the acquisition, and they were joining a team of 2,000 people. And the executive that we worked with said, she said, look, I think that I'm buying better people, and I think that some of the talent is going to come in and be invited to lead, not just as managers, but as technical experts. And so by uh, by doing an analysis and saying, who does what work where uh, at the technical level, then we were able to basically introduce the teams to each other and allow them to have a kind of a common framework for the discussion about how are we going to slot these new folks in and and um, what are we going to do about that. So it's uh, super interesting and, and it can allow for us to blend the families, if you will, after an acquisition mm. um, and have them uh, get to know each other faster, better and kind of reduce like a big measure of our successes is reducing the cycle time. You know, basically, how long does it take from the first day that the acquisition closes, they call it day one. So how long does it take from day one until everybody's back to work? They they understand the big picture. They can see their role in it. They know whether they're leading or following in all their technical roles. And then they know how to be successful. And we can measure that with talent data by asking some very direct questions. And if we ask those questions and we get unclear answers, we know we've got a challenge. We've got work to do. Um, so that's a it's a critical component for for mergers and acquisitions. Talk about Steve some of the the strategies you employ and, and help companies with, with mitigating talent risk by uh, what you call transferring knowledge. Can can you unpack that? Yeah, you bet. So knowledge transfer is replicating the technical talent. You know, the sometimes people want to call it the secret sauce of our <laughs> best technical executives. Sorry, best technical experts uh, replicating their expertise into the heads and hands of uh, somebody else. So, for example, one of our clients was responsible for choosing the glucose syrup for the next uh, biscuit or chocolate at uh, one of the big confectionery companies, one of the big chocolate companies in England. So he was an expert in picking the sugar <laughs> for the for the next product. He'd been doing it for 30 years and he's getting ready to retire. You know, nobody really even understands what he does. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they have this label for him. You know, he's the sugar guy, but they don't really know what that's all about. So knowledge transfer starts with picking the expert to be replicated. And that's um, a critical leadership role, mm-hmm. knowing who's doing it the right way and what is it they're doing that we want to replicate. So in his case, they had this headline 
find a you know sugar guy and they have the name of the the expert. Then uh, you got to pick the people who are going to be learning, and it's almost never one to one because we want to reduce the risk, not just replicate the risk, right? If we just transfer the knowledge to one person, now we have another single point of failure, <laughs> right? We want to try to avoid that. Right. And uh, and once you have uh, the person or people who are going to be learning, we call them the apprentices. Then we label and deconstruct the the work that this expert does. So in the case of the sugar guy, it sounds like he might, you know, you can imagine, is he a chemist? Does he, is he like got a really good palate where he's a taster, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, But it turns out he had several of what we call knowledge silos. So one of them was around supply chain. So he had the capacity to analyze a factory's ability to deliver the sugar. And uh, he could do that by looking at data. He could do that by traveling, going out to the physical factories. He could do that by managing relationships, for example. And so that's one of his knowledge silos was around supply chain. And then he had another one that was around product development. And he had relationships and knowledge and the capacity to read strategy documents and plans. And so in the from a product development perspective, he had a, a deep knowledge. And then he had a, a whole regional knowledge. So he understood things like where the sugar was going to be produced and how that would be affected by global economies and by political situation, things like that. And then there was the business of actually talking about glucose syrup and his knowledge of that. So if we thought about that as four big buckets of knowledge, Mm. and then inside of each one of those, he performed a bunch of tasks, then we could say, well, do we want to even try to replicate this guy in a person? Or do we really need four different people Mm. who are going to work together to take over his job? So the critical thing about knowledge transfer is, you know, who's the expert? Who's going to learn? What is it the expert does? Who's going to learn it? And then deconstructing it down to the task level. And then we've developed over the last 25 years tools to help that expert be an actual teacher. So with a a month's warning, having the sugar guy replicate himself uh, was going to be very difficult if we didn't have a methodology for him to transfer his knowledge. And so we teach him how to be a teacher. We teach the apprentices how to aggressively go after the information and document it as much as is necessary. And, And that sets up a measurable path to having those people take over with minimal uh, impact to the business. I used to pride myself on leaving a company and finding out later it took four people to replace me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is that, I mean, that's exactly right. And uh, the thing is, is that it's, it is common. And the other thing that happens is sometimes we don't want to replicate all of the person who's leaving. So mm. it takes four people in part because we need to blow out the work, you know, and, and um, spread the spread the love, if you will. But we also want to be surgical about what we're not going to replicate. So a lot of experts have brilliance in some areas and deep problems and other areas. And so we want to be able to choose what we invite them to transfer their knowledge on and kind of cut out some of their sometimes old or bad, bad habits that we don't want to replicate in the people who are taking over. Mm-hmm. Well, we've, we've hinted at some of this, but I want to get into uh, modeling the new talent risk conversation, as you call it. What are some of your recommended strategies, Steve, for making sure everybody's on the same page? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, one of the reasons why we get excited about talent risk data is because it does provide a framework for a conversation. And the conversation has to flow from the board of directors 
through the CEO and president down to the vice presidents through the middle manager, director level folks to frontline managers, and then ultimately to the people who are doing the work. And one of the huge challenges for every company on the planet is making sure that that uh, strategy and the plan isn't lost in translation. Mm. And I can, I, I know that through my work, we can evaluate the quality of the most senior leaders by talking to frontline employees and asking some very basic questions. So the book we talk about, a tool I call the big picture. Everybody talks about the big picture. You know, if you if you picture Jeff from your experience, you know, people that you've worked with who really get the big picture mm. or people you work with who really don't get the big picture when you personally have felt like you got it or didn't get it. And everybody kind of nods along with that. But then when I say, what's the big picture? Um, <laughs> then it creates this kind of discomfort because people say, well, you know, it's how the, it's sort of the, you know, it's the connections, it's the relationships. It's this amorphous, vague thing that we all <laughs> value very highly, but nobody can really talk about. So, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, I, I just said, well, how could we measure whether somebody gets the big picture. And I came up with just a simple set of questions. If you can answer a handful of questions and your answers match your boss and your peers, then you measurably get the big picture. And if your answers don't match, then you have a gap. And that's a problem you can solve. And the the boss and the peers comment is consistent regardless of what level of the organization you are. So if you're a receptionist or the CEO, you should be able to answer these questions and be consistent with your immediate team. And so that's how we can measure whether the information that we need to run a company flows from the board all the way to the front line is by answering these questions. So the first question I always want to know is, you know, what's your core purpose? And this isn't necessarily mission, vision, values. In fact, it almost never is because the one of the key things about the big picture is that the language is very plain. Mm. So it's the kind of words you would use if you were talking to a buddy over a beer, you mm. know, you'd say, well, we're testers. So our job is to break the software, you know, and uh, <laughs> if we break it well, then we'll find all the problems and then our customers will never see those problems. So we want to have plain language for the first question, which is what's our core purpose. And then the second question is who's our customer, whether we have internal or external customers, we should be able to make a list of who it is that we serve. Mm. And then by definition, if it's not on the list, it's somebody who's not there. Now, that seems pretty obvious. But as soon as you have more than one customer, which everybody does, then you have to start to think about which one's more important. So mm. I'll give you a quick example. Everybody's probably called help desk at some point in there, you know, technical support at some point. If you're the guy answering the phone on technical support, and you're working inside a company, and you've got the phone ringing, and you've got two people ringing, there's one is a salesman who's out in the field trying to close a deal with a client and the other one is a vice president who's got a problem with his cell phone. <laughs> Which one do you pick up first? And uh, if you get the big picture, you you might say that, of course, the salesman is the most important one. But if you don't get the big picture, you could say, well, that vice president scares me more. <laughs> right. So who's your customer is, uh, if, you know, people make poor decisions. They prioritize poorly if they if they don't really have a, a clear idea of who's who's more important. Another one is um, what are our core products and services? So what, what do we do? You know, what do we actually deliver mm. and making a list? And then again, prioritizing that list allows you to say, you know, if I spend most of my time on uh, products that are noisy and problematic, but not high priority, mm. then I can end up, you know, spending my whole day working on things that don't matter. So what are my product core products and services and what is the priority order? And I'll give you one more. It's, you know, uh, how do we measure our success and which metrics are the most important? Now, these are really simple questions. Mm. Uh, 
but the answers to them are very elusive. And uh, I, I've led literally probably thousands of, of conversations on the big picture over the years. And how many times do I have somebody who stops and, you know, kind of scratches their head and says, I don't know the answer <laughs> to that question. So when we look for our um, talent risk data can include answers to basic questions. It's the answer is data and the data can be tracked and we can measure whether or not people have consistent answers and we can measure the quality of the communication from the top to the bottom of the food chain. And, and I'll tell you, if your people can't answer those questions and sound like you, you have a problem that you can solve as a leader, you know, today. And a lot of people say, well, I'm not sure I know. And then that's great. So go upstream and work it until you figure it out. And uh, I, we worked with a big, one of the big um, retailers, the top five retailers in the world. And the CIO, the message from his front line was, we don't know the answers to these questions and we don't think you do either. <laughs> and so that was a really good kind of a wake up call for him. He, he had very clear answers in his mind, but they weren't getting down to the front line. So guess what? You know, sit around, talk about it and write it down and make a list and, and put them in priority order and argue over why one's more important than the other. And you will get you will get aligned and you will get a clear idea of the big picture and that communication will be deeply improved. Mm, I love it. Well, over the last uh, couple of decades, Steve, your experience with this, what have you seen as some common practices that don't effectively manage talent risk? What are, what are companies doing wrong and, 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 and doing it wrong consistently? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we do succession planning and everybody works on that, but we stop succession planning at, you know, usually vice president, sometimes senior director, and then we uh, let the rest of it sort itself out. But succession planning for technical roles mm. is rarely done. And, and it's uh, at least as critical because, you know, dropping a leader in clearly leadership really matters, but technical experts can, you know, they can shut down your capacity to deliver product, you know, so your capacity to actually generate revenue could be shut down by losing a mechanic. Uh, at a factory, for example. And I've seen that actually happen. So, you know, don't settle for succession planning that stops at the, the most senior levels. I've seen headcount conversations where uh, all of us have been through this, where the manager says, my team's exhausted. I need five heads to be able to deliver next year. And the executive says, oh, times are tough. I can only offer you two people. And then they settle on three. And and really, the headcount conversation becomes who's better at negotiating or who's better at complaining, <laughs> right? When it really should be, uh, let's look at the strategy. Let's look at our plan. And then look, let's look at the talent that we have. And let's look what, what it's going to take to staff. And then let's decide what we're going to stop doing so that we can deliver the right work with the headcount that's available. And let's make sure we invest in the teams that uh, are going to bring us the closest to new revenue or closest to competitive advantage. So let's let's have a better conversation than that. People put a lot of stock in engagement scores. One of our clients is a big aerospace company and a senior vice president walks in with his binder full of engagement scores. And that tells us that people are happy or not. It tells us whether they feel safe in their environment. And it tells us if they're going to leave their job in the next two years. Those are those are relevant pieces of information, but they're not going to really help you decide whether you've got the people it's going to take to execute on your strategy. It just tells you whether people are happy or not. And it just stops short of being fully useful. And so I, I encourage folks to you know not settle for your current human capital analytics. My other favorite one, Jeff, is that people have demographic information and they'll say to me things like 37% of our employees are of retirement age. And I'm like, so what do you do? Hire young people? I mean, you know, is it, is, is it real? Is the problem really that everybody's old or is the problem that you have folks with 
unique knowledge and they're single threaded and and you don't have anybody who can provide the backup. So let's let's not solve for age, which is not even legal to talk about. Let's <laughs> solve for whether or not we've got the right technical talent to deliver on our strategy. And then let's make sure that we we solve that problem every day rather than anything that's more like window dressing, if you will. Well, in the time we have left, Steve, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask that aren't directly related to the book. But before I move on to those, is there anything else from the book you want to make sure we walk away with? Well, I I think the main thing is that uh, if what I'm talking about sounds heretical or just wacky, um, it's it's because you haven't heard about this before. You know, this is it's a it's it is a new way of thinking, and so don't settle for for less. Take a minute and think about the notion of the talent that you've got relative to your needs and um, gather data that you can use to make a plan and, and start solving for it. Well, I want you to think for a moment, Steve, about the uh, the books you've read over the years and, and think about a title or two that, that jumps out as having had an impact on you and share, if you would, why or how it impacted you or they impacted you as they did. Yeah. One title I'll bring up is a book called The Phoenix Project. Uh, a lot of our clients are IT and uh, and so it get, has gotten passed around there. And it really tells the story. Uh, one of the authors is Gene Kim and uh, Kevin Baer and uh, uh, George Spafford. Uh, it tells the story of that. The we all are familiar with of um, a person, an individual person that that fits the bill for what we, you know, for an expert that's single threaded and and it, it shows the impact to a company over time. And it's written as a novel. So it's kind of a fun, fun read. But it, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people who, who live in that world would really see themselves. And uh, so, so that's one that's that, that I that I picked up off my, my bookshelf. Mm-hmm. Well, when you get in front of an audience uh, to speak, Steve, what are some things you think about and, and want to ensure you deliver? deliver on when it comes to giving a talk that's impactful and a talk that, that's memorable? Stories are the foundation of how I, you've heard a bunch of them today. You know, the stories are the foundation of, of how I like to be impactful because I think people really relate. You know, they can hear examples that are familiar. Or they can groan because the, the pain that the, of the story I'm telling is familiar to them. So for me, bringing up uh, real world examples that are familiar enough to all of us that uh, we can relate and then we can start to see what we want to do about that. It's, it's, that's what crosses my mind when I hear that. Well, uh, what's ahead for you and your team? What are you working on now that, that you're excited about and, and willing to share? Anything come to mind? Yeah, you know, the gathering data, you know, there's a lot of work in the universe around artificial intelligence and, and uh, machine learning, which is effectively just using data to get insights that we can use to, to change the world, really. And so we're excited about gathering new data that we can then use in uh, reporting and uh, finding trend lines that will allow us to help our clients and others make better and more informed business decisions. So we're just doing a ton of work on the data platform, the data architecture, um, trying to make it easier and easier to gather the data and then provide it a um, really meaningful set of reports that can inform you know the biggest decisions that are being made by corporations today. Well, the book again is called Do You Have Who It Takes? Managing Talent Risk in a High Stakes technical workforce. His name is Steve Troutman. Steve, thank you so much for for being my guest today. I really appreciate you taking time out of what I know is a busy day for you to appear here. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me in. For more on Steve's books, 
as well as how you might connect with him, whether that's his website, LinkedIn, Twitter. You'll find links to all that and more on the show notes page I've created just for this episode. That can be found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 236 for episode 236. For questions or comments, you can send those to me directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. And if you haven't yet, be sure and consider that free 30-day trial from our sponsor, FreshBooks, freshbooks.com slash readtolead. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.